5. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this evening. And we will read from verse 38 down through verse 42. The Bible says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Tonight we're going to look at this title, Lifting Up the Commandments, the Commandments of Christ. Let's pray. And God, I ask tonight to give us clarity of mind and heart as we consider uh, your, your word. Lord, uh, this uh, sermon you preach, these commandments that you have given. May we take them seriously. May we understand them. May we seek to embrace them and, uh, Lord, endear them to our hearts and our lifestyles. Lord, uh, help us, God, to uh, be those that don't just hear, but do. Help us to leave here and work our best to practice, uh, Lord, the commandments that you've given us as we consider that this evening. Lord, uh, sometimes your word, it, um, it comes across as hard to a world that lives in darkness. And Lord, we live in that world. But I pray, God, that we would seek to neglect the world and seek to embrace you. Give us uh, your, your stamina, your strength, your understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. This morning we talked about how that we've uh, uh, preached a lot of sermons on this theme of lift him up uh, in, in our, our year, uh, this year, 2017. And I told you that after going back and reviewing all my sermons that I have chosen to place them into two separate series this morning we looked at lifting up Christ through my money. That fit in the lift him up my actions series. Tonight we're going to look at the lift him up his attributes. You can throw that next slide up there for me if you don't mind. Here are the sermons of Christ's attributes that we've looked at so far. We've talked about the character of Christ, lifting up the compassion of Christ. We talked about lifting up the cause of Christ, uh, rather the cross of Christ, the causes of Christ, the church of Christ, the coronation of Christ, and tonight... We're going to look at lifting up the commandments, the commandments of Christ. And so, uh, God the Father in the Old Testament gave us ten commandments. We're all familiar with those. You can put those up there next, if you don't mind for me. Uh, one more. There they are. There are ten commandments. Uh, how many of you somewhere in your house have the ten commandments hanging or posted? How many of you? Just raise your hand for me if you don't mind. Hold them up there. You have the Ten Commandments. I would encourage you to do that. That's a great thing to do. Listen, it's not right for us to complain about them getting taken down to the public school and the courthouses if we're not willing to hang them up ourselves. So hang them up. Uh, put them in front of your own eyes. And you say, oh, well, my kids are grown. It doesn't matter. You need to be reminded not to lie and not to covet, not to steal, not to uh, commit adultery, not to take God's name in vain. It's a good thing to have. And so uh, post those in your house. I would really... Really encourage that, but here are the Ten Commandments that are right there in front of you. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Or, and thou shalt not covet. So, the Ten Commandments. By the way, you go back to Exodus chapter 20, you see that there's a whole lot more explanation given around those, or at least many of them, than just that. But that is a brief synopsis of uh, what the Ten Commandments are. Interesting enough, throw the next slide up there for me. 
Four of those involve uh, our relationship with God. The first four involve our relationship with God. And the purpose of this slide is not to see the, not to be able to read them, but to see the contrast. The first four commandments were given talking about my relationship and your relationship with a holy God. The last six are given to help manage our relationship with each other. Our relationship with each other. So God gave us, God the Father gave us ten commandments in the Old Testament. And uh, four of those, the first four deal with how I interact with God. The last six deal with how I interact with others around me. Matthew chapter 5 and 6, God the Son likewise gives us ten commandments. Ten commandments. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Look up with me, uh, look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. We were in... Uh, I believe verse 24 when we open. Look down, uh, uh, 38 rather. Look, uh, look with me at verse number 17. And again, this is introduction laying the groundwork for us to be able to understand uh, the sermon tonight, uh, a better grasp it here. And for those of you here that don't understand how the Old Testament and New Testament work together, boy, I hope you'll uh, sit up straight and tall and, and really uh, tune into what I'm about to say here. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, make no mistake, Jesus came on the scene and He basically took all of the traditions of the Pharisees and He threw them out and He went against them. And a lot of people thought, man, this Jesus is coming in and He's going to give us a brand new set of rules and He's throwing out the Old Testament. He's throwing out the Old Covenant. And so, out with the old and in with the new. Now, the law, the Old Testament, the law uh, was the old covenant given by God the Father. Uh, grace is the new covenant that's given to us by God the Son. So, you have the old covenant given by God the Father. You have the new covenant given by God the Son. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24 says this. It says, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Uh, so the question is, did Jesus do away with the old covenant uh, or the Old Testament? Did Jesus just do away with the old covenant? Did Jesus do away with the Old Testament? There's a lot of, there's a lot of churches out there that want to teach that. The Old Testament, we don't need it anymore. We need to study and read and understand the New Testament. And it's got some great stories in it, but it's not really applicable. I told you about a family member of mine who has said that if it's not repeated in the New Testament, then we don't need to follow it. And that is a false doctrine. A false doctrine, okay? The Old Testament still is relevant. And unless the Bible says in the New Testament that you don't need to follow it anymore, then you need to follow it. You need to obey it. That's how it works. The best way I know how to illustrate this is that the New Testament represents God's grace or is the grace of God. We have moved into the era or the time of grace. And that grace does not replace the law. Watch this rather. It stacks on top of the law. Stacks on top of the law. Another way to look at it is, the Old Testament was given uh, to uh, uh, all of them there that lived during that time. They were given a half-completed puzzle. The New Testament came along and completes the puzzle. So now we've got the whole thing. i got to say, you're very blessed tonight. We're very blessed tonight. If you've got a Bible sitting in your lap, you have both the Old Testament and the New Testament in its complete form there. You've been given the whole Bible to read and study. You have no idea how blessed you are. 
Listen, uh, uh, people of old time, uh, people in the Old Testament, and even most of the people in the New Testament, they had bits and pieces of the Bible, they had bits and pieces of the truth, but they didn't have it all. Now, God gave them enough to understand what they needed to know to be saved, but He didn't give them the whole Bible. Uh, and even a lot of people after the Bible had been given, they didn't have it because either it wasn't in the right language or it wasn't in print. And here we are today, it's in our language, and it's in print, and it circulates, and you can go to any bookstore that uh, is large, and you can buy yourself a Bible. If not, you have an internet, you can buy one off of. And if not, you can download a Bible app off the App Store and uh, for free, and you can read Read God's Word in its entirety. Boy, i got to say, I love the era that we live in. But what about this concept of the Old Testament versus the New Testament? How does this work? The Ten Laws, the, 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 the Ten Commandments given by God the Father, and then Jesus comes along and He gives us Ten Commandments in His uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, do, are the Ten Commandments in the New Testament given by Jesus meant to replace those of the Old Testament, the answer is no. They're meant to come alongside and complete. Let me help you understand it this way. Law versus grace. Now, the law in the Old Testament was given to show us that we can't. We can't. Romans 3.23, if you know it, say it with me. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Those that think they can work their way to heaven, uh, you need to stop and realize you fall short of that goal. You fall short. Now, in this same uh, chapter, or rather in this sermon, Jesus would say that if you want to get to heaven, you've got to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Here you have these Pharisees that have this high level of of, of living, and they didn't live it themselves, but they dictated it and they preached it to others. And if you want to get into heaven, boy, you've got to even be above that. And they were sitting back going, well, we can't do that. Why? Because we all fall short. Why did God give us the law? He gave us the law to show us that we can't keep it. We, you can't keep it. Um, uh, here in, uh, uh, let's see, uh, he, uh, let me find my notes here. James chapter 2 verse 10 says this, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So if you've ever bared false witness or told a lie, boy, then you're, you're just as guilty as the adulterer. They say, well, I've been faithful to my wife all the years of my marriage, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But if you've lied in God's book, you're just as guilty. You're just as guilty. So God gave us the law to show us that we can't. He gave us grace. Grace was given to help us because we can't. You understand this this evening? The law shows us that we can't. Alongside comes grace, not meant to do away with the law, but to complete the law and to show us that because we can't, here's grace to help you along. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, not of the completing of the law, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the law was given to show us that we can't. Grace was given to help us because we can't. Uh, law versus grace. Again, introductory thought here. The law was dictated to man by God the Father. The law was dictated to man, that man being Moses, right? On the, on the mount there, Mount Sinai, uh, given to man by God the Father. God thundered out 
uh, to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments. Actually, technically, the first time, God wrote it in stone himself. And then the second time, he dictated it to Moses. And Moses wrote it in stone. So, the law dictated to man by God the Father. Grace was brought to us and given to man by the, the form of God, God the Son. So, law dictated by God the Father. Grace provided and given to us by God the Son. Law versus grace. Law versus what grace here. Notice this, that uh, the commandments of the law were obeyed out of fear. The commandments of the law were obeyed out of fear. You were told, you better keep the law or else. Or else. Or else what? Well, in many cases, you were taken to the edge of town and you were stoned. Or God would open up a hole in the ground and swallow you. Or God would send fire through the camp and, 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 and consume you that way. Um, you had to keep the law or you were, you were a goner. And uh, if you didn't keep the law at certain points, boy, uh, it, you, you, you better keep them or it was fear. I picture, really I picture here a very strong military type dad with a big old wooden paddle in his hand glaring down his nose at his children. Those children are obeying because they're scared. They're scared. That was the Old Testament. By the way, that's why the standard of righteousness was lower in the Old Testament and it was elevated in the New Testament. Why? Watch this now. The Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, or the commandments of the law were obeyed out of fear. The commandments of, of grace are obeyed out of love. They're obeyed out of love. Now, um, why is it that I come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night? It's not just because I've been hired to be here. I've had plenty of times in my life where I did not draw a paycheck from a church. And I was faithful to church every service they had. Why is it that I come to church? Why is it that I share the gospel? Why is it that I help people in the community? Why is it that I visit hospitals? And why is it that I do my best to hold my lifestyle up to the level that the Bible teaches that I ought to live it up to? It's because Jesus Christ loves me so much that He gave Himself for me on the cross. When you stop and consider the great sacrifice Jesus made for you, how do you not want to obey Him? How do you not want to obey Him? 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul put it this way, The love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that in, if one died for all, then we're all dead. The love of Christ constraineth us. Now, you can look at the boundaries that we're going to cover, these Ten Commandments of Jesus, and you can say, man, Christianity is strict. Or you can step back and say, you know what, Jesus? If you were willing to leave the throne of heaven and be born as a, uh, be born by, uh, of peasant parents and live a life of a homeless man, never commit a single sin, Live in squalor, uh, 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 accompany yourself with publicans and sinners, and take common men and train them, and then uh, uh, be betrayed by one of your own people, and then hang on a cross, and then allow the sins of all mankind to be placed on you? For me? So I can go to heaven? You would die for me? You tell me what to do, and I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm not going to buck at it. I'm not going to buck the Bible. I'm not going to question what it says. 
Boy, a, a Jesus who's willing to let himself be killed on my behalf, I'll do anything for him. I'll do anything for him. I'm tired of being a slave of the world in sin. I'm tired of waking up every day and running the rat race to to do what? To accomplish what? Lord, if you're willing to die for me, then I'm willing to live for you. Now that's the premise of the message tonight. We get into the the rigid laws, the rigid commandments that Jesus Christ lays out. You must understand that if you're not focused on the cross, boy, this is going to seem extreme. But when you focus on the great sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf so that your eternal soul would be salvaged from the pit of hell and placed in an eternal heaven of bliss and splendor, oh my, now that change, that's a game changer. That changes everything. That changes everything. So, what are Christ's Ten Commandments. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, here we find that Jesus gives exactly ten commandments. How many of you have a Bible that has paragraph markers in it? How many of you have a Bible that has paragraph markers in it? Okay, You see the little paragraph marker there? If you go from uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 21, and you go down from there to the end of chapter 6, and you count the paragraph markers, you ought to count nine paragraph markers. Now you say, the tenth commandment. The tenth paragraph marker is the beginning of chapter 6. And so at the beginning of each paragraph marker, Jesus begins a new thought. Jesus gives a new command. So uh, in my study this week, I discovered that from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus begins laying these out, to the end of chapter 6, Jesus gives us... Ten Commandments. Now, interestingly enough, Matthew chapter 7, we find that we're not to judge. Now, I don't count that as one of uh, His commandments, more as, hey, here are my commandments. Now, don't walk around and judge each other. Don't walk around and judge each other. So, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, all the way down to the end of chapter 6, we find ten commandments that Christ has given us. So, tonight, we're going to lift up Christ, because the Bible says if we lift Him up, He'll draw all men to Him. We're going to lift up His commandments that He's given us, and uh, the goal here is that we'll live by these so that through our lifestyle, people will be drawn to Jesus. Let's jump right in. Tonight we're going to look at the first six. The first six. Point number one tonight is this. Thou shalt not harbor anger. Thou shalt not harbor anger. Look with me at uh, verse 21 there of Matthew chapter 5. And uh, listen, I could I could preach this sermon for hours. I understand that uh, you all got to get home and get to bed. You got work tomorrow, and so I'm going to really work to finish on time. With that said, I will not exhaust any of these thoughts. I won't even come close. Honestly, I won't even scratch the surface of any of the six that we'll cover. And so, if you're looking for something to study on your own, boy, I encourage you to jump into th- these uh, commandments and really study them in, uh, in depth. Look at verse 21. There it says, "Ye have heard." that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Alright, let me stop there. Jesus is taking uh, the, uh, the, I believe it's the sixth commandment there, Thou shalt not kill. And He's going to not do away with it. He's going to, again, stack on top of it. Stack on top of it. You seeing this? He's not doing away with the law. He's adding to the law. He's taking grace provided at the cross and He's going to add to it. Look at verse 27. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. 
shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, uh, let me pause the reading there. What makes our anger without cause? Right, that's, that's a very interesting phrase there. That whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Without a cause. Now, you ever had anybody do something to you that's made you angry? That would be all of us. Everybody in here has been angry at some point. Some of you were angry on your way into church tonight. No testimonies. Amen. Um, you say, but I had every right to get upset. Do you know the way my boss treats me, Pastor? I have every right to be angry. You say, Pastor, do you know how disrespectful my wife is to me? You know she burns my toast every morning. You know how mean my husband is to me? He makes me pick up his underclothing off the floor. He's just not nice. And I have a right to be upset. I'd say, no you don't. No you don't. Moving on to something a little more serious, you'd say, you don't know what that villain that's sitting in prison did to my family member. I have a right to be angry with them. I'd say, no you don't. No, you don't. When you fully understand your offense toward a holy God, and you fully understand His total forgiveness, when you fully understand that He has dismissed your charges, you have no reason to be angry at anybody. No one. Not your boss. Not your godless, blasphemous, filthy lifestyle boss. Your neighbor. Your family member. You're really without a cause. When you're angry without a cause, you're in danger of the judgment. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? For the lost, it means hell. That's exactly what it means. You walk around with an angry spirit all the time, and you have a short fuse, and you blow up all the time in everybody. You live that way. You never get that dealt with with God. You never confess your sin. You never call on the name of the Lord to save your soul. Well, you're going to die, and you're going to go to hell. But how about for the saved? Does that mean they're going to go to hell? We don't have the time this evening to turn over there, but if you're taking notes, write down Matthew chapter 18 and read the story that Jesus gives about the, the man who's forgiven a great debt and then can't forgive the, the, the man who owes him a small debt. This man's forgiven of a whole lot of money, trillions of dollars, and he, he can't forgive the guy on the street of just a couple of hundred dollars on his way home from being forgiven. And so uh, the Bible says there that uh, if you can't forgive others who have trespassed against you, that you're going to be turned over to the tormentors. By the way, Jesus is speaking to His disciples here. What kind of judgment? What kind of judgment? Jesus will judge you as being an angry person with an unforgiving spirit. He's going to turn you over to the tormentors. The tormentors. And I believe that to be all kinds of disorders that the psycho community or the mind-studying community has labeled as uh, being all kinds of things. Depressed and all the various things that go along with that. And I believe that some of that, in some cases, are the tormentors. The tormentors. Look back with me at Matthew chapter 5. Let's continue our reading here. Verse 
uh, number uh, 22, again says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, or uh, 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 the idea there is being empty-headed, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So you see this this uh, this causeless anger going from just being an inward anger. Now we're, we're name-calling and we're putting people down. Well, look at verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar... This is speaking of you giving of your offerings at church. Now bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee. Leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whiles thou art in the way with him, lest any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge. Again, refer back to Matthew 18, and the judge deliver thee to the officers. Thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto you, uh, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. The Old Testament says, thou shalt not kill. Jesus says, not only should you not kill, you shouldn't even be angry with your brother. Shouldn't even be angry. There's, there's somebody in this room you can't stand. They come in and you walk out. Well, you find out there's an activity and you see that their name's on the list to go. You think, well, I'm not going. My friend, Jesus says, you're not to live that way. You say, well, uh, um, I used to feel that way towards someone here, but they left. Okay. You still need to do your best to reconcile the relationship. Again, I, you say, Pastor, but I don't ever see them anymore. What's it matter if I'm angry when their name comes up? Their name only comes up when you allude to that kind of thing in your preaching. I don't even think of them outside of that. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You say, but pastor, that's hard. That's a hard line to draw. Jesus died for you. He gets to require you to do some things that are hard. And by the way, whatever He's asking of you, it's not as hard as what He did on your behalf. 1 John 3.15 says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Again, hating your brother is equivalent to killing uh, your brother, murdering him. Now, of the seven deadly sins, anger is probably the most fun. It's the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that while you are wolfing, what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. It's you. Thou shalt not harbor anger. Number two, thou shalt not lust. Thou shalt not lust. Look, look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. It says there, ye have heard that hath been said uh, of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Again, one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the law uh, given by God the Father. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus is going to stack on top of that another truth. Verse 28, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Let me pause there. Usually men are going to be more lustful with their eyes than women, but women, you can lust as well, can't you? This goes both directions. 
Women, you look at a man with lust, it's committing adultery as well. Verse 29, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, Jesus takes us to an extreme. He says, if you have a lust problem and you can't stop, and you're trying to stop and you can't, then pluck your eyeball out. Pluck your eyeball out. And if that doesn't work, pluck the other one out too. Now, I don't think anyone here ought to go do that until you have really worked hard uh, to overcome that uh, uh, sin. But the Bible says that if you're looking with lust, it's the same as committing adultery. i got to say, we, we live in a day and age where this is very difficult, isn't it? Can we just be frank tonight? Sensuality sells everything. I mean everything. Look, you can't walk down the Stratford Green and not walk past stores without seeing lust, seeing things that, you, uh, that are easy to lust after, seeing people that are easy to lust after. Women have been so objectified in this society that they're nothing more oftentimes than an object to move a movie at the box office or to uh, uh, move a product off a shelf. Guys, the closer we get back to Jesus coming, the closer we get to the moral decay of the collapse of this country, the harder this one's going to be to follow. But nonetheless, the commandment's still the same. The commandment's still the same. How many remember Paul Harvey? Paul Harvey. Uh, what was his phrase? Now you know the rest of the story. All right, Paul Harvey tells a story of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. The account is grisly, yet it often it offers fresh insight into the consuming, self-destructive nature of lust. What an Eskimo will do is he'll 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 take a knife blade with animal blood and allow it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another, till the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood, much like a popsicle would be around a stick. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows a sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh, frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Fervently now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great uh, uh, becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue, nor does he recognize the instant at which his in, uh, insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more. Give me more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. It is a fearful thing that people can be consumed by their own lusts. Consumed by their own lusts. Only God's grace keeps us from the wolf's fate. Wolf's fate. In all seriousness here, if you have a problem with lust, you need to get help. You need to get help. Um, you need to go to someone that can help you. Someone who will help you in confidence. If you're here and you're married and you're struggling with lust, you need to tell your spouse. You say they, that my spouse would be devastated. Be more devastated if they find out without you telling them. 
be more devastated. You're here and you're a child or a teenager and you're struggling with lust. You need to go talk to your parents about it. Be less devastated if um, you tell them than if they catch you. Listen, there's help and there's hope. But if that sin, that sin stays pet and it stays silent and it stays private, it will, it will hurt your life in a great way and hurt many people around you. The Old Testament says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus comes along and says, out of grace, thou shalt not lust. Number three, we see, thou shalt not leave thy spouse. Thou shalt not leave thy spouse. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, again, Jesus coming along and satisfying the the law, adding to the law, stacking on top of it that whosoever shall put away his wife, notice the clause here, save for the cause of fornication, we'll come back to that in a minute, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Again, ye have heard that hath been said of them... Okay, we'll we'll go on to verse 33 in just a minute here. So verse 31 and 32, Jesus says, listen, I don't want you getting a divorce. I don't want it. I want you to stay with your spouse. I want you not to leave. I don't want you to leave. I, I want you to stay. And by the way, if you study this out in other places where Jesus deals with this topic of divorce and remarriage, there is a clause given where divorce is allowed. It is permitted, but it is still never God's will. You say, well, my spouse cheated on me and I just can't see myself with them ever again. Uh, It is God's permissive will for you to be able to get a divorce, but it is not His perfect will. He wants you to try to work that out. He wants you to go get help and counsel. He wants you to do everything you can uh, to, to bring that about. Now, I know this is a sensitive topic, and uh, there are those sitting in the auditorium that may have been divorced or probably are divorced and possibly even remarried, and there there might be some questions about what all this means. I'm not here to give you a hard time tonight. Uh, I'll let the Holy Spirit uh, uh, convict from within where necessary. But i got to say tonight that if you are divorced and you're not married, be very, very, very careful that you study this out, that you understand what it means before you willy-nilly just go jump into another marriage. You better be very careful. In fact, in most cases, when a divorced person remarries, they're marrying into adultery. Be very, very careful there. Now, there are exceptions. If studied at length, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 give a lot of insight on this. And there are a lot of other passages you can study. And I would love to sit down with you if you have questions and, 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 and talk about it in private. But the greater point here is not to give people a hard time who are divorced or remarried. The greater point here is to encourage those that are married to stay with your spouse. Don't leave them. Don't leave them. You say, but, but pastor... Our marriage is on the rocks. Work it out. Work it out. Down here we have uh, the Yankowskis. Been married for 57 years. Can we give that a round of applause? 57 years. Beautiful. Beautiful. They are madly in love with each other. I love watching the two of them. Can I make you a guarantee? Their marriage has had hard times. There, I guarantee you in 57 years, as hard as this might seem to believe, because Marie is such a sweetheart, 
There are times where Marie has been cantankerous, hard to get along with. Right, Marie? And Mike, you've probably been a bonehead at some point in 57 years. You've probably been a bonehead all 57 years. You know why they're still married? They're committed to each other. Committed to each other. There are some couples that are married 57 days. I've known several couples that way. Or less. You know the difference between the Ankowskis and a couple that gets divorced 57 days in, 5 years in, 10 years in, 15, 20 years in? Is that when the Yankowskis hit a hard time, they committed to stay. So I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to leave. Now, um, the traditional wedding vows that most folks repeat say this, I take thee to be my wedded wife or husband to have and hold from this day forward. For better, well, that's easy, isn't it? For worse, what does that mean, for worse? Does that mean that until they get on your nerves and you fall out of love? That's not what that means. For richer, for poorer, it's easy to be married to someone when they've hit the jackpot at work. They've got a raise and they're buying you a new car and they're giving you good health insurance. How about when they've been out of work for years? They can't find a job because they're hurt. In sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, we know how this ends, don't we? Till death, till death do us part. Till death do us part. These are vows. These are vows. God only gives you one reason why you can leave this vowel. That's fornication. It's not good enough to say, well, my spouse is cantankerous and I don't love him anymore, and so, see ya. Doesn't work that way. If there's not been uh, infidelity in the marriage, you can't go. Go get help. You say, uh, they won't come. Then um, you go get help and you be the best spouse you can be. Someone says, well, pastor, it's not that simple. What about a a woman, or even in case, in some cases, a man that's in a, a physically abusive home. My advice to that person is this. You need to separate. You need to separate until you have clear evidence that there has been fornication in the marriage. Then you can divorce. But you don't go run to the divorce court. I'm not asking anybody. God is not expecting anyone to stay in an abusive home. But where there is uh, abuse, you leave, you separate, and then you, you do not go get a divorce until the divorce comes to you. You do not go get a divorce until you know there, for sure you have hard evidence there's been infidelity. Thou shalt not leave thy spouse. Number four, thou shalt not swear. Thou shalt not swear. Now this doesn't mean to curse. This means to uh, make an unnecessary oath. Look, at, look with me at Matthew chapter 5. In verse number 33, it says there again, Ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but I shalt, uh, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, 
for it is God's throne, uh, nor by the earth, for it is His footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, uh, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. Look at verse 37. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whosoever is more than these cometh of evil. I've heard uh, college kids walk around each other going, yea, yea, nay, nay. Yay, yay, nay, nay. That's not what that means. You don't walk around saying, yay, yay, nay, nay to each other. What this means is that, listen, your yes should mean yes. Your no should mean no. Now let me give you some background on, uh, of this. Let's, let's keep, consider this in context. There are those who've taken this to say that you can never put your hand on a Bible and, uh, commit that you'll keep your word in court. And I believe the court does allow, uh, for religious objectors on this. And I think that's great. And if that's your interpretation of it, that's great. But let me share with you some background here. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13 says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. So here, when you were, when the, uh, uh, when they were told to take an oath, they were to do it by swearing on God's name. And what the Pharisees had done is they had found a bunch of workarounds. They wouldn't swear on God's name, but they would swear on heaven. They would swear on Zion, the city of Zion. They would swear on, uh, uh, on all kind of, uh, 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 heaven's footstool. They had all these things they'd swear on, and they would, they were gotten, gotten to a place they were acting like a bunch of kindergartners. Do you promise? Do you promise, promise? Do you pretty promise? Do you promise with a cherry on top? They had gotten rid of swearing by everything, for everything. And God came along and said, it's nonsense. You guys have corrupted what I made. Uh, when you take a serious oath and you're being questioned, you are to do it on the name of the Lord, uh, uh, showing that you're serious about this and uh, you're not to just sit here and put it on everything else. And God said, because you all are abusing the system, that we're going to throw the system out. Verse 37, look back at verse number 37 with me again there. It says, but let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay, for whosoever is more than these cometh of evil. Now, let me ask you a question tonight. I believe this is the greater principle. Do you keep your word even to your own hurt? Listen, I can't tell you how many people I've invited to church that says, oh, I'll be there on Sunday. And in the back of my head, you know what I think? Yeah, right. You think, oh, pastor, you're just a skeptic. I am, but you know why I'm a skeptic? Because about one out of ten people that say they're coming actually show up. Good job, Lisa. You're here. Lisa told me she was coming Tuesday. She showed up. You, uh, you, you met the 10% quota there. Thank you. But a lot of people, most people, they can't keep their word. How many of you have been burned by someone who didn't keep their word? Oh. Uh, some of you contractors in the church. You agree on a price. You do the work. You're still waiting to get paid. And it's been a long time. Um, uh, someone tells you that they're going to take care of something and it doesn't happen. i got to say that uh, one of the hardest things to do when it comes to church work is rely on volunteers. Now, if Pastor Dave or Pastor Mike don't do their job, <laughs> they're employed here. They draw a paycheck. But if you volunteer here and you just don't show up, well, you're really leaving everybody in a tough spot. And I've got to say tonight, don't do that. Don't do that. When you commit to something, boy, keep your word. You say, but pastor, I have to cancel because of... Swear to your own hurt. Give your word to your own hurt. If you agree to do something, 
well, you agree to do it until something else can be worked out and you get plenty ample time to do that. Number five, commandment number five, thou shalt go the second mile. Thou shalt go the second mile. Look with me at verse 38 here. It says there, ye have heard that hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let me stop you there. Alright, in the Old Testament you find these things called cities of refuge. How many of you are familiar with the idea of a city of refuge? Uh, uh, there were several of them uh, positioned around the country. And if you killed someone accidentally, you could, if you outran uh, uh, the avenger, you could beat them to the city. And as long as you lived there, you had asylum, you were safe, you were protected. Uh, however, if you killed them uh, out of, and it was murder, then you were expelled from the city of refuge. And uh, uh, there was a life taken for that life. And so the purpose of this was not to be vengeful at every turn. The purpose of this was to handle serious issues. Uh, and a life for a life. If you take someone's life and it's done uh, intentionally, boy, then your blood was to be shed uh, 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 for that. Now, the Pharisees had taken this uh, to a far extreme. Look at verse 39. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek... Turn to him the other also. Why did Jesus have to say this? The Pharisees had taken this to such an extreme that not only should you avenge someone who's murdered your loved one, but if someone slaps you in the face, well now they're taking the Old Testament law to mean you get to slap them back. Someone steals your shirt, well you get to go steal a shirt out of their drawer. If someone sues you at the law, then you just go sue them back. You countersue them. They had taken this to an extreme. And Jesus was saying, let me give you some clarity and let me even raise the bar. Uh, verse number 40, And if, if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, are you to counter sue? No. You let him have thy cloak also. He wants your coat, then you give him your shirt. Verse 41, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. I call this the second mile commandment or the second mile principle. Let me explain the history of this. And um, back uh, in Jesus' time, the Jews lived under Roman rule. And the way the laws were structured, a Roman guard could walk up to a Jewish person and could take their bag and give it to the Jewish person. And by law, they were required to walk exactly one mile uh, and then they could lay down the bag and they could go walk back the mile to what they were doing and continue. And so any Roman guard, it didn't matter what you were doing, it didn't matter what your excuse was, they could give you their bag, you were required to stop and you were required to accompany them and then uh, go the mile, they weren't allowed to take you more than a mile and lay it down. And can you imagine how inconvenient that would be? Boy, you're in your yard and you got the sun's coming down and you got half the yard cut. You're trying to hurry up and get it done. And here comes a Roman guard moseying on along. Oh, stop what you're doing. Take my bag. And you're thinking, but I, I'm not going to have a day off for two weeks to get back to the lawn. doesn't matter. Here's my bag. you got to carry it. You just imagine how inconvenient that would be. Can you imagine how resentful you would be as a culture and people over some oppressive government coming in and taking uh, uh, you away at, at any time they wanted? And Jesus said, listen, don't resent the mile. When you walk that first mile, walk on the second mile. Walk on the second mile. Can you imagine if a person were to do that, what that Roman guard would stop Look, uh, most people knew exactly where one mile was in every direction from their house. When they got that mark, they had they got to that spot, they had it marked. They just tossed the bag down, went back along their way. 
You imagine that person that keeps on walking the second mile. Uses that as an opportunity to be kind to others. Now, let me just say to the pacifists in the room, this is not talking about the corporate world. God is not saying as a country, if someone throws a nuclear bomb at us, we're to turn the other cheek. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about you individually as a Christian. You turn the other cheek. You go the second mile. You go the second mile. The last one we'll look at tonight, law number six. Thou shalt love your enemies. Thou shalt love your enemies. Look at verse 43. It says there, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if uh, ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect or mature, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I can go to um, any McDonald's in America and I can get my sandwich the same way. Why? Because McDonald's, have, they have a trademark. There is that special Big Mac sauce you find on a Big Mac, right? The truth is I ought to be able to go to a Christian here and White Oak Baptist Church and go find a Christian sitting in a pew somewhere uh, down the east coast in Florida or out in uh, Washington State or over in Beijing, China or in uh, uh, some city in in India or Lima, Peru or uh, Mexico City, Mexico. Find any Christian in any of those places and if they truly are a follower of Christ, you know what they're good at? Loving their enemy. Loving their enemy. Notice it doesn't say tolerate your enemy. It says... Love your enemy. You say, well, I love them, I just don't like them. Well, God took that clause away too. You're to do good. (laughs) Do good. You may not like them, you still got to do good. You may not like them, you still have to pray for them. Well, I prayed for them, I prayed that God would just rain down His wrath. (laughs) Wrong prayer. Wrong prayer. You pray that God blesses them. Pray that God blesses them. The Bible describes that as heaping hot coals of fire on their head. You know, that is not natural. That's not easy. But that is textbook Christianity. In the Grace of Giving, Stephen, uh, the book Grace of Giving, Stephen Olford tells of a Baptist pastor during the American Revolution. His name is Peter Miller. He lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, and enjoyed the friendship of George Washington. In Ephrata, there also lived another man named Michael Whitman, who was an evil-minded sort who did all he could to oppose and humiliate this pastor. One day, Michael Whitman was arrested for treason and sentenced to die. Watch this. Peter Miller traveled 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of the traitor. 
No, Peter, General Washington said, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. My friend, exclaimed the old preacher, he's the bitterest enemy I have. What? You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? General Washington said, that puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant your pardon. And he did. Peter Miller took Michael Whitman back home to Ephrata. No longer an enemy, but a friend. Hey, you know what? Anybody can be nice to someone who's nice to them. You don't have to be saved to do that. Take something supernatural working from within our hearts. To love someone who is ugly and mean and nasty and hurtful toward us. My friend, that's how Jesus ends chapter 5. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. How about it tonight, Christian? I've, I have shotgun shelled this. I have sprayed truth, buckshot, all over the auditorium. We've gone from, from hate to loving your enemies, and we've hit everything in between. Has the Lord touched your heart in Samaria tonight? Has God, is God working on you about following the Ten Commandments? You say, Pastor, I just can't do that. The answer is to focus on the cross. Realize that if He died for you, then you can live for Him and do these things. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. These six commandments from Christ, you know what they deal with? They deal with our relationship with others. Just like the last six commandments of God, the Father's laws. The last six of the Old Testament Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with others. The first six of Christ's Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with others. And let's not forget the second greatest commandment in the entire Bible, and that is to love our neighbor, love your neighbor as your own self. Getting along with others? You being faithful to your marriage? You committed to your marriage? Say, Pastor, our marriage has hit a rough spot. Some of you wouldn't be a bad idea tonight for you to take your spouse by the hand, whether you're going through a hard time or not, and you kneel down here at this altar and say, pray together and say, we will not be unfaithful to each other. We will not leave each other's side. Struggling with lust? It's time to, time to confess. Time to confess to the Lord and get it right. Time to confess to those in your life that it is directly affecting and get it right. Struggling with hatred, anger, harbored anger, wherever the Lord's working on you tonight, will you just get it right with Him? Will you do it His way? Will you ask Him to help you with these things? Lord, I do ask tonight as we go to this time of invitation that, Lord, decisions will be made that stick and last. May we walk out of here tonight truly changed, Lord whatever area it is that individually we need to work on. Give us a sweet time of decision-making. Lord, a lifetime of new living. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed. The piano begins to play. The invitation is beginning. The altar's open. Would you come tonight, Christian, and kneel and ask the Lord to help you? Would you ask Him to help you to be faithful to Him? faithful to your to his commandments
in and of yourself, you can't do it. You can't keep these commandments through your flesh. But if you're a child of God and you have the Holy Spirit within you, then Christ can do it through you. Walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. We call that grace living. Grace living. this direction. Thank you tonight for your attention and uh, to the preaching of God's Word. I'm so thankful we've got a Bible that is so applicable to today's living. Aren't you? Aren't you? And uh, it is an evil world out there that we face. It's an evil world. And so just thankful that God's given us a good book to, a perfect book, a perfect book to help us, to help us. Go forth this week and uh, what if I would like to, I'd like to admonish everybody to do one thing, and I'm going to try to do this as well. Think about the person that you like the least in the entire world. I want you to work to do something kind for that person this week. Can you do that? Whoever it is. Maybe it's someone that's burned you in business. Maybe it's someone who's burned you at church. Maybe it's some uh, uh, family friend that is just messed your life up person you like the least in the entire world. I want you to do something kind this week for them. Show them that you can love your enemies. Pastor, I can't do that. Get on your knees and think about Jesus and Him loving you on the cross. You can do it. You can do it.